Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Helping you wake up, remembering this is our Father's world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. I'm going to give you a little uh, insight here at the open of this hour into um, how my day begins. So I, uh, I arise early so that I can spend some time in the Word of God. I get my coffee. I then uh, pop open what we call the tracking sheet for the show for the day. Um, I, uh, I survey a number of headline sources and I check my email. Um, and so when I did that this morning, I received um, in my email... The news of the death of David Kenneman's wife, Jill. And David is a brother in Christ, and he is a friend in ministry. He heads up the Barna Group, Barna Research. He has been a guest many times here with us on Mornings with Carmen. Um, he and his wife, Jill, have three kids. And we have been, you know, hashtag pray for Jill. Um, I never met Jill. And yet I have to tell you, I, I grieved this morning. The message from a mutual friend acknowledged that um, her death brought a welcome end to her suffering. And yet you and I both know um, if we've ever walked this journey ourselves, which I certainly have. We know the end of one form of suffering simply yields to a different form now for um, her husband and her kids, her parents, her friends. So many people are walking today in suffering and grief in so many forms. There is so much loss. And so I want to invite you today to pray with me for the fragile places. For those for whom the veil grows thin or the veil has been lifted entirely. I want you to be praying with me for the fragile places where people are walking into and to the end of the valley of the shadow of death. And I want you to be praying with me for those who have to then turn around and walk back out of the valley without the person they love, holding on to the sure and certain hope of the good shepherd, Jesus Christ, but having given their person at the end of that valley unto death. So as Christians, as people who are in Christ, people who walk with Christ, Um, people whom Christ carries when we're too weak or too broken or too tired to take one more step ourselves. As Christians, we do not grieve as those who have no hope, but we certainly grieve. And today, I'm weeping with those who are weeping over a woman named Jill who I never met. I never met her in the here and now, but I am confident that I'm going to spend all eternity with her as a sister in Christ, a co-heir of the kingdom of heaven. So, we're going to pray, and then we're going to turn to the, uh, to the headlines of the day. <clears throat> Holy God, hold us this morning. Hold us close. Hold us tight. We know you've got the whole world in your hands, and we know you've got Jill in your very presence. Um, tend now to our brother David and to their kids. Tend to Jill's parents and her friends. And Father, pour out your mercy and your grace today on those who grieve and suffer in myriad ways. 
And in the face of death, we acknowledge your grace and we pray. We pray with both the cross and the empty tomb in view. And let our witness today draw people to him, to Jesus, to Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. We'll be right back. Joining me now, as he does every week, Peter Kapsner. Welcome back, sir. Thanks, Carmen. Well, that's quite a quite a sad story to, to lead off the hour with, but that is part of the human situation, is it not? Yeah, and um, you know, death death is, uh, I think, more and more at the forefront of the conversation that um, that we're having today as Americans. I mean, Indeed. it's I don't know, uh, I don't I don't know when else in American history, like a death count has like led the news, like every single, right. not just every single day, every single moment. So, um, yeah, so uh, I grabbed a headline from Religion News Service just really actually on on this topic because the subhead was with the coronavirus, there's been an incredible wake up call to our mortality and it's about this guy, um, this article is about this guy named Michael Hebb, who um, wants to support people as they near the end of life. But this is expressly uh, non-religious, mm-hmm. uh, and certainly not Christian. So, you know, you and I both read this. Um, t- talk about what's going on here from your perspective. Yeah, boy, it's, it's you know, it is interesting. It is terribly timely, I think, too, Carmen. I think that, as you've referenced, and rightly so, when we when we wake up in the morning and see the number hit 200,000 and then 210,000, 220,000, and, and, and the death numbers continue to climb. And, of course, we have some friends that are across the pond in Europe as well, and we talk to them often about what's happening in Scotland and then, of course, in broader Europe because the countries are so close together. We see everything spiking there. It, it really does crystallize something that I think is that, that that we have to come to grips with one way or the other. And and that is, wh- whether you're a believer or not, you have to recognize on some level that things are not as they should be when uh, we look around our world and, and we see what we see. And specifically, uh, the fact that death exists and it is 100% effective in terms of the, the journey towards which we are all headed, uh, ha- again, it has a way of crystallizing something that is true. And, and one of the things, Carmen, that I've wondered about over the last maybe decade or so is we've seen emerge, and I think understandably so in a lot of ways, in Christian communities, sort of this theology of human flourishing, and and I am supportive of that uh, in many different ways with uh, sort of the, the caveat to recognize that at the end of the day, we will not fully flourish until earth and heaven become one again. And we have to be a little careful to, to not assume that in this world, uh, we are going to experience the fullness of the flourishing that our hearts long for. The Genesis 1, the Genesis 2 pre-fall flourishing for which we're called, even part of the image-bearing reality. And I'm sitting here holding this book in studio that Paul gave me of, of Daryl Bach uh, called Cultural Intelligence. And he actually starts his book really early by just making this statement. And, and if we can attend to this statement, it begins to define it and again crystallize how we sort of see the world. He says that Christians fight a battle in a fallen world. 
And and death is the great revealer uh, of sort of the, the, the chaotic reality of this present darkness, to use the language of Paul. And so these death cafes uh, are ways in which even non-believers, I think, are coming to grips with the fact that it's a subject we don't often talk about, but we have to get our head around it. And of course, as believers, you and I and Carmen, uh, you and I and Paul, Carmen, as well as the people listening, that there is a pathway forward of hope in the midst of the grief that uh, that is unique to the Christian witness. And to the extent that we can attend to the reality of death in this world is the it, to the extent that we can bring a hope in the midst of it. But if we continue to sort of avoid it, again, understandably so, it's not always a subject I'm terribly comfortable with. And I would rather spend a lifetime focusing on how I can flourish in this world. If I don't at least um, somehow qualify that flourishing with the fact that death does exist and it's coming for me as well, then I, I think we're going to miss out on uh, even the very beauty and the reality of God's kingdom. So um, I was amazed. I am, I am amazed. I shouldn't be amazed. <clears throat> that it's become like a, um, a dinner party game. Yeah, really interesting, isn't it? Totally the way it's being described. More than a million people participating worldwide. Um, there are um, specific, you know, additions of this death over dinner experience, um, including additions that uh, one one of which is expressly religious. I was surprised. So they, you know, they, they have this uh, partnership with the Cleveland Clinic. So there's one addition of death over dinner for healthcare providers. There's an Indian addition. There's a Brazilian addition, an Australian addition. But the I was interested to note that right, right, it says it's not denominational. It's about celebrating every faith. But there's an expressly Jewish edition of death over dinner. Mm. I guess maybe the things that I one of the things I'm wondering is maybe there's a creative Christian listening right now who wants to take this idea and um, and actually, you know, say, hey, let me adapt this. Um, for an expressly Christian conversation. Yeah. How would Christians, how could Christians, you know, leverage the fact that people are heightened in their uh, awareness of and attention to mortality? Mm. And how could we, like, recognize, hey, if there's a million people participating in this, there's a, you know, quote-unquote market for the conversation. So um, what would it look like for Christians to lean into this conversation, not by going and hijacking this very atheist approach in the Death Over Dinner um, project, but by adapting it from a Christian worldview and saying, hey, look, let's actually equip Christians to have conversations like this with people. Obviously, there's a formula here that is um, that that works, and it gives us the opportunity to engage the conversation from a distinctly Christian worldview. Yeah, I, boy, wouldn't that be fascinating, Carmen? I mean, you, you think about that, is that, and, and let's just uh, reference what you referenced, which is the idea of sort of a Jewish version of this, is uh, the rich history of Judeo-Christian uh, background in both of those faiths includes um, a, a very robust understanding of atonement or the idea of, of a substitutionary uh, practice in which sort of the sins are forgiven and uh, and cast aside. And of course, in, in Jewish faith and practice throughout the entire Old Testament, we see atonement. It's, it's one of the most important days on the Jewish holiday. So there is a different understanding, obviously, of atonement uh, and, and what Jesus did on the cross. But um, there is this shared reality of atonement. But what is unique to Christianity? that is not shared uh, by any other world religion 
is that God became flesh and dwelt among us. And, and as you walked uh, out that road to Calvary from that, from that lonesome garden to that, to that desolate hill, and he decided that he was willing to become subject to death, among the many things that happened in that is he swam through the waters of death. The only claim of a religious faith that says that God became flesh, swam through the waters of death, and in so doing was able to conquer death and thus uh, be in the first fruits of the resurrected life towards which we are headed for those people that tether themselves to Jesus by giving their lives, by saying, we will follow you. Uh, that is the beautiful invitation of Easter Sunday. That is the unique claim of Christianity. And, and I think we can come to those very difficult tables where we're maybe not comfortable talking about our own mortality and death, and death but, but Christianity has a unique uh, message in the midst of it that has to do with Easter Sunday, that just as he died and was raised, so too will we be raised. And, and what a beautiful opportunity and a message at this point. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Um, you know, our hope is found in nothing else. All right. Peter Kapsler and I have to take a very brief break. When we come back, um, wow, I'm going to, I am going to lift up a story, Peter, about <laughs> a woman who um, very, very publicly advocates for abortion. Um, and yet is now pregnant and acknowledges that the baby in her womb is a baby, is a child, and yet she's loath to um, even even wonder about, let alone tell anyone, um, what the child's gender is. In fact, she's committed to not answering that question until this person becomes an adult at 18 and declares it for themselves. Yeah, yeah, we're doing that story next. If you can Um, all right, I'm going to have a conversation with Peter Kapsner about a person whose worldview is so disintegrated that we could um, spend an awful lot of time uh, pulling out threads of this story. So first of all, please do not hear this as a criticism of a particular individual. We are actually seeking to understand um, a, an individual's worldview by what she has said herself. So we're going to take her own words and we are going to examine them and we are going to lift those ideas up and say, mm, there might be better ideas than these ideas. So we are going to have a conversation about Emily Rajakowski and what Emily Rajakowski has said about her own pregnancy. Uh, Emily Rajakowski is a model. She's a pro pro uh, progressive activist. She's a socialist Bernie Sanders supporter. That gives you a little window into who she is. And she is pregnant with her first child. Now, um, the headline here is that she will not be announcing the gender of her child until the child is 18 and can choose for themselves. So, Peter Kapsner, is gender a choice? And do you have to be 18 before you know? <laughs> oh, Carmen, the story. I mean, I, I, I like to say I'm a fairly measured person and try to be fair-minded about uh, different points of view. But th this one, I will say, it nearly made my head explode just in terms of some of the inconsistencies and in, in, in thought. And again, I appreciate that you say we're not going to critique an individual, but I think it's very fair to, to critique a worldview, uh, regardless of that worldview, to, to investigate that. And I think what I struggle with on a number of levels here uh, is that there, there's a clear idea that the intentionality of the parent... Um, is is what then defines whether the baby in the womb is a baby or not a baby at that point, right? I mean, so so you have um, this inconsistent view on that point. And, and to your question about gender, it's very clear uh, when you get into the original language of the biblical text of Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, 
and it talks about the creation of male and female. Those words within the the Hebraic text are uh, are ish for male and isha for female, and they appear all throughout this Genesis one and two narrative. And when you get into the, the again the character rich language of the Hebrew text, you see that there is even some intentionality in the symbols and in the characters that talk about a, a very distinctive gender of, of masculinity and femininity, and both of them representing the image of God on earth and needed and necessary. And we, we don't have enough time to cover all of that ground, but suffice to say the scriptures are very clear about uh, the fact that there is a, a created gender reality. Now, what makes a person male or female and, and how we understand the influence of, of sort of our social setting on our perceptions of masculinity and femininity, another really important conversation, but it's clear there is an intrinsic reality uh, of, uh, of male and female. And I think what's hard when we start using this kind of language of saying, we're just going to let our child decide at the age of 18. Uh, when I was driving into the studio this morning and thinking about this conversation, the, the Proverbs passage where it says, train up your child in the way that they should go. And when they're mm. old, they will not quickly depart from it. And, and that training up, somebody once uh, re- sort of was able to show me within the text that uh, it's less about training in proper doctrine as if it, 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 it's sort of a, a thought life kind of thing, uh, though that is important. To train up is really akin to the idea uh, of hedging a child in with the voices of the community that tell them who they are and whose they are and what story they're in. And so in this hyper-individualistic approach where you just say, you know what, you decide for you who you are. When you take that worldview, it's very different than the worldview I just tried to describe from Proverbs, which is we begin to know who we are and whose we are, uh, not because of how we perceive ourselves, but because of what God says about us and, and what the, the people of, of God say about us as, as, our, as our hedge, as our shepherds that are around us as, as we walk out life. And, and I think this is a sort of a natural byproduct, is it not, of an of a increasingly hyper-individualistic society that puts all of the focus on, on a person's uh, own ideas about themselves as opposed to saying, hey, maybe I'm actually part of something bigger here and I can find my sense of self in a bigger story besides my own personal story. So um, I find her reference uh, to marriage, her reference to pregnancy, um, pretty old-fashioned, really, if you're going to, you know, compare the rest of her progressive sort of agenda. Um, I I have a hard time imagining that progressives are not going to push back on this. They seem to think that kids as young as kindergarten can declare themselves um, to be one gender or the other. And if it doesn't align with their biology, they can demand to have it changed. And so this notion that, um, you know, Mrs. Rodzikowski and her husband are going to um, not honor that decision until the child is 18, I think that says something, right? She's more old-fashioned than she knows. She is more old-fashioned than she knows. And she uses language um, that betrays that she's not really as progressive as she, you know, uh, holds herself out to be on the issue of abortion. I mean, listen to this line. I want to be a parent who allows my child to show themselves to me. Let's see. She's talking about her child. Um, She's talking about the baby in her womb. Um, And she doesn't, uh, you know... It, it, it wait, I, and I got to do this paragraph. Can we do this paragraph really quickly? For do you sure. have time, Paul? I got, I got one minute. Okay. Um, listen to this you, uh, religious or spiritual language as well. Um, she, I used to call myself superstitious. She then goes on to talk about something called magical thinking um, as her coping me- mechanism that she uses to um, the, to develop herself that, so that she feels like she's more in control. Through this, she gets a, a sense of peace, a sense of control. 
Um, and and she's living, you know, now with wonder. She's full of wonder because mm. of this person, by the way, this person inside my body. Okay, she is so disintegrated, and and yet she, you know, has a really long article penned in Vogue. Like people are reading yeah. this. Yeah, you you said it. So that word disintegrated, Carmen, I think represents the spirit of the age, which is a cobbled together worldview from multiple points of view that uh, often are uh, inherently inconsistent with one another. So meaning that I'm going to cobble together this thought from this faith tradition because it suits what I want to believe, or I'm going to cobble together this thought from this philosophical leader because it suits what I want to believe, or I'm going to cobble together this practice from this area. And, and we're blending all of these different kind of practices again. But who is the center? of that. Um, it is the individual making the decisions about that. And you do end up with a very disintegrated worldview. And, and so the last piece about that is th- this is so often what I experience with my young people too, Carmen, even our best and brightest of our evangelical kids in the classroom is they are also feeling disintegrated because there's so many voices that are, are shouting for our attention all day long about who we are and whose we are. And, and you do end up in this sort of sense of disintegration, especially when you are the one who is deciding for yourself uh, what you want to choose moving forward. There's really no other result than that. Yeah. God is the one um, who not only makes sense of who we are, but helps us make sense of ourselves and the world we live in and everything else. Peter Kapsner, thank you so much. We uh, we love talking with you. Thank you in advance for hosting uh, for me next Monday and Friday. Yeah, for sure. We love, I love being here with you guys. That's mutual. We'll be right back. Adam Weber is a a pastor in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. He is the author of uh, a book entitled Love Has a Name. He has joined us on a prior occasion to talk about that. Um, We just thought it'd be fun to have him back and talk about the uh, wrap-up to Pastor Appreciation Month and um, maybe how we could be praying for and appreciating our pastors. So Pastor Adam Weber, up next. This is Max Locato. Jesus told the blind man, go and wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. Access to the pool of Siloam involved the descent of three sets of stone-hewn steps, five steps each, no casual stroll for anyone, much less a blind man. But he did it, and he leaned over the edge of the pool and began to wash his eyes. And from one moment to the next, he could see. The question is often asked, what does a person need to know to become a follower of Christ? This story provides an answer. The man knew nothing of the virgin birth or the Beatitudes. He received sight, not because he deserved it, earned it, or found it. He received sight because he trusted and obeyed the one who was sent to open eyes that are blind. Remember, friends, you are never alone. This is Max Lucado. Weber. You can find him in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Adam, welcome back. It is so good to be back. I hope you're having a fantastic day so far. Oh, I am I am having a fantastic day so far, and you're about to have a really fantastic day. You are um, the pastor upon whom we are going to just dump and pour all of our appreciation um, on behalf of the 
thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of pastors here and around the world at the end of this Pastor Appreciation Month. So are you ready? I am ready, and that's awesome. That is that is a huge gift. So through the month of October, one of the things we've been doing at MyFaithRadio.com is inviting people to just give a little shout out to their pastor, show their appreciation for their pastor. Um, There are more than 150 pastors um, now being appreciated right now at MyFaithRadio.com. You are one of them. Here is what um, one of your sheeple has said about you. Adam is simply the best man I know. He lives out everything he preaches on Sundays and loves others in a way Um, I've truly never seen before. Adam came alongside me and listened to me. He listened to my story. He made me feel heard. Uh, He made me feel valued. Now, in just over a year, Pastor Adam is actually going to serve as the officiant at my wedding. That might give away who this is. Um, He's changed lives, and he surely changed mine. So, Adam Weber, appreciation, little shout out to you as a pastor. How does that that feel, man? That's amazing. That is a, a huge gift. Like I can, I feel like I can speak on behalf of a lot of pastors right now. It's easy to feel discouraged, uh, just uh, as other fields are feeling the same way. And there's something about being just even a word of kindness or someone saying, "Hey, this is what God did through you," that makes you want to keep on going. So that is a huge blessing. That means the world to me. So here are some pastor appreciation ideas to find a scrap of paper and write a note on it today and send it to your pastor, a a thank you note. I mean, they won't even care if it's a birthday card. Like, grab something. You have got something stashed or stored away somewhere um, that you could write on and send your pastor a little note of appreciation. Um, Maybe it's an anniversary card. Um, Maybe it's the anniversary of your baptism. Maybe you have one of those um, handmade uh, re-birthday cards. I encourage people to take note of their rebirth day, so maybe send a note to your pastor celebrating your rebirth day and how uh, he is helping you uh, in your walk of faith. I don't know. Send him a send him a card. There you go. There is a pastor appreciation way to do that. Um, drop something uh, off at the church. I don't know. Send him a gift card. There's all kinds of stuff that you could do. Just do something. Don't do nothing. This is Pastor Appreciation Month. It's almost over, and um, not that you can't appreciate your pastor every month, but we just wanted to emphasize it in this particular month. Um, Adam, um, you probably have relationships with a lot of pastors, not only there in your local community, but um, you know, but elsewhere. It's a hard time, I think, to be a pastor right now, especially in places where there is anxiety about um, whether or not their churches are going to recover. Uh, after COVID-19, I just know there's just a lot of stress and anxiety out there. What are some ways that um, people can show their appreciation for their pastor that you feel like might um, really be touching pastors where they are hurting most? Oh, I, I think um, that's a great question. I, I, as you shared, a note of encouragement goes a long, long ways. Uh, I also think right now we're, we're not seeing a lot of people in front of us on Sundays. And even just getting a word from somebody to say, hey, I was watching online and this part of your message really encouraged me or spoke to me. Or, hey, gosh, you said this to me and I've been implementing that in my life. And right now I'm reading through the book of John because a couple of months ago you said to read the book of John. I think one of the things right now people, pastors are feeling is, am I making a difference? Um, 99.9% of pastors went into ministry to point people to Jesus And we're seeing this huge need of people struggling with depression, with loneliness, with marriage stuff. And so every part of us is wanting to point people to Jesus more than ever. 
And yet it feels like we're the opposite is happening. It's like, gosh, there's nobody here. I want to encourage people so bad. And we understand the reasons of people not, not being in person. Absolutely. So that not, not making light of that at all. But I think just even just an encouraging word of, Hey, I'm hearing you. I'm, I'm listening to you on iTunes on Monday morning. Uh, and I hear your message. I think just those re, those specific words of, hey, you are continuing to be used by God. That's what fills my tank, at least. And then, it's, then the simple thing of, hey, go get a cup of coffee for yourself. Um, those are the smallest things. Even if a person doesn't need the extra help to buy a cup of coffee, there's a, a blessing in knowing that someone sees you and notices you. And that's really true of any field uh, teachers right now. I'm trying to always encourage our teachers of our kids Hey, thank you so much for doing what you do because this is not easy on anybody. So I think that to reflect back to you what um, this individual in your church has said about you, um, you're just you're articulating that you know you're human and um, you need to be encouraged in the same ways that we all do. Like just to to recognize that you're seen. Um, and to recognize that you're not walking alone right now, that you're heard, that your story matters. And all of that, really, what I'm hearing you say, Adam, is to God's glory. Like, I want to know that I'm being used by God. I want to hear the impact um, that uh, that is being walked out in your life of faith with Jesus. I hear you pointing past yourself to Him. Um, and so I, you know, I want to acknowledge that. We We want to appreciate our pastors because they really are serving as um, exemplars as agents of grace, as shepherds of the sheep. These are um, these are the under shepherds of Christ, and we acknowledge and recognize they have a unique role and responsibility in the life of the church. And so, um, it's a precious gift to have a good pastor. And so, we want to encourage you to lift lift up your pastor today in prayer and let him know um, that. Uh, that you see him and you hear him and that you're listening and then share an impact story, an impact statement. This is how you are impacting my life. I heard you say this and now I am um, doing X, Y, Z. So there you go. Um, Pastor Adam Weber and I, uh, we're going to take a very brief break and we'll be right back. We're going to revisit his book, Love Has a Name. All right, back on uh, September 2nd, Adam Weber was here, and we had an extended conversation about his book, Love Has a Name, but we can always use a good reminder. So, Adam, love has a name. What is it? The name of love is Jesus. It's Jesus. And I I feel like we need to know that name right now more than any other time. Uh, Jesus, the name of Jesus, and how to love other people like Jesus. It feels like both both of those things feel and seem to be absent, even though they are not. God is all present. And yet now more than ever, it feels like we could uh, use some more of his love and a little bit more of Jesus in our world. Yeah, more Jesus, man, more Jesus. That is, um, right? That I mean, you and I both know that is genuinely the answer to every question. Um, it, it can sound... Um, it can sound like I'm saying that and I'm not taking seriously the concern um, uh, of the person. And that's not at all what we're talking about. And, and actually, the book addresses that. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, this is not just a, a passing glance at some sort of like, you know, sappy Christianity. This is substantive conversation about the one who is love, whose name is Jesus. Yes, as, as it really is. As followers of Jesus— 
our lives should radiate the love of Jesus. And that is hard. Um, the longer I follow Jesus, the more I'm blown away by the way he loves people. It's so different than me. When someone wrongs me, I want to wrong them back. When someone disagrees with me politically right now, I just want to shut them off. I, I don't want to do anything with them. I want to stop stop engaging them. I mean, just like every everything that, that the way that Jesus loves is so different than me. But when we begin to love others that way, it changes everything. Uh, when we begin to show people the grace and truth and mercy and kindness of Jesus, people will be drawn to the Jesus inside of us. And I, I think what, what we're Christians have gotten it wrong is we've maybe just shouted the name Jesus, 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 while our lives look anything but the love of Jesus. And when there's an inconsistency anywhere, whether it's with our kids, they're not listening, whether it's with coworkers, not listening, family members, not listening. But when our lives radiate the love of Jesus, his kindness, his faithfulness, his gentleness, and then we begin to speak about the name of Jesus, people people will want to listen. And more than that, even people who strongly disagree and want nothing to do with Jesus will begin to ask us questions about, about Jesus. And so it's, it's definitely the opposite of love, light and fluffy. Right now, our world talks about a light and fluffy love. That's not the love of Jesus. I, uh, I had an experience. I- I want to affirm all of that, and then I want to share a quick experience that I had that brought it um, into relief in my own life recently. I I can um, shout out in anger when someone is not listening who I think should be listening. Um, so here we might be talking about, you know, kids, teenagers, uh, not responding in uh in a in in this with the speed with which I might appreciate a response to my um, <clears throat> raised voice. And so I got to the place where I was like, can you hear me? Now, we live on 40 acres, so there is a question about whether or not I could be heard. And the response came, can you see me? And then I realized the reason that I wasn't getting the response that I wanted or needed is because the person was in a position where they actually needed me to come and see the situation they were in. They needed me to address the situation they were in before they were going to be able to respond to what I was asking them to do. And I I think the can you hear me question, as Christians, we tend to raise our voices and we're we're trying to yell over a culture where people are just asking, can you even see me? Can you see the situation that I'm in? Can you see my circumstance? Because love would come down to this. Love would yes. condescend to this. If, if you would take the time to see me, um, I might be able to hear you in a minute. But right now, the situation that I'm in is, is really, it, 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 it's, I need help. And I need love to come down to condescend to this. And that's who we are as Christians, I think, in the world today. That is so good. So good. there you that go, man. I'm just here to give picture. you sermon illustrations. That's it. Come that anytime. is wonderful. <laughs> All right. Perfect. Hey, we love you. We love what you're doing in Sioux Falls. Um, shout out to you and your uh, and your people. Um, I got to let you go uh, here early because Dan DeWitt is waiting in the wings. He's got a glow in the dark book. That's all I'm going to tell you. That's perfect. Perfect. All right. Have a wonderful well, day. Thanks. We'll talk to you soon. We'll be right back. Dan DeWitt is going to share with us his new children's book. And yes, it glows in the dark. Oh, 
Okay, yes, we normally have Dan DeWitt on on Fridays to talk about the Weekend Worldview Reader, and so let me just go ahead and tee that up for this Friday. You can check it all out at theolatte.com. But I wanted to bring him on today to talk about the bright light and the super scary darkness. Dan DeWitt, welcome back to Mornings with Carmen. Thanks so much, Carmen. All right, what 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 are we talking about today? This is so fun. It is a glow-in-the-dark book, which, as you pointed out on social media, it actually works. And so my kids did the exact same thing you spoke of. They ran to the bathroom and turned the lights off, and the cover, sure enough, glows. So this is a book that I just published with B&H Kids. I'm so excited about it and happy to say anything you'll let me say about the book. We've already covered that it glows. Yeah, so um, here um, here was the conversation at my house. What's that book? That's Kid 1. Kid 2, it glows in the dark. Let me see it, Kid 3, snatching it, running off to the bathroom, shutting off the light, followed by Kid 3 asking, well, what is it about? Kid 1, it's about glowing in the dark. Uh, rolling, She was rolling her <laughs> eyes at that point. Kid 2 says, well, actually, it's about Jesus. And then she responded, well, yes, who glows in the dark. <laughs> so it is a book yeah. about the one who glows in the dark. Yeah, you know, John in John's Gospel says that Jesus is the true light that comes into the world and enlightens every man. And the Apostle Paul makes this powerful—I actually use this verse at the end of the book. There's a parent guide, a discussion guide for parents and their kids after you read the book. And it, Paul says in Second Corinthians, For God, who said, let light shine, um, let light shine, and that's a reference to Genesis. And then he goes on to say, though— has has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And so Paul uses that metaphor of light to explain all of human history, from the creation of the world to the incarnation of Jesus. And I wanted to do that same thing. I wanted to tell the big story of the Bible, but to put it in terms of the, this metaphor of light and darkness. Um, it's, it really, it is comprehensive and yet it's also brief. It's at a a very accessible reader level, The Bright Light and the Super Scary Darkness uh, by Dan DeWitt. It's brand new. It is available now. Um, Dan, what is so super scary about the darkness? Well, you know, we're, we all grow up knowing that darkness can be scary. And so things make weird noises in the dark. You know, I use throughout the book this the tagline, screak, smorg, splurt, this idea of the darkness even kind of sounds scary. Um, but we recognize bad things do happen in the dark, And uh, but usually, you know, we just tend to be afraid of even in a safe house that if it's dark, we're afraid of it. And some of that touches on a reality that often there's a spiritual darkness. And so what I want to do is just take a simple everyday experience that kids have. You know, is there a boogeyman in the closet? And to remind us that no matter what's out there in the world, um, no matter what's in the closet, which obviously there's not a boogeyman in the closet, but that God is going to defeat all the darkness. So whether it's just kind of a simple fear of, you know, something looks weird at night or something sounds strange, that God's bigger than that. But not just that. In the Bible, the whole Bible is the story about the light coming to defeat the darkness. So we don't have to be afraid of the dark. But ultimately, we don't have to be afraid of anything, even evil itself, because God will will conquer um, and light will be established. Even in the new creation, we see that there's no sun because Jesus is the light of the city. Yes, because he glows in the dark. <laughs> as, right? as does the book cover. 
Yeah. No, I know. It really is so fun. I'm in the dark in my studio right now because my book, The Bright Light and the Super Scary Darkness, glows in the dark. And it's just fun. It's so fun. Who didn't think of this before? <laughs> it well, is. I can it's take so delightful. No credit for it. Well, the, it's the just delightful. Was their idea. Yeah. Um, Dan DeWitt is an associate professor of applied theology and apologetics at Cedarville University. He's the author of several books. The latest one is The Bright Light and the Super Scary Darkness. Uh, he posts regularly at theolatte.com. I highly recommend. Uh, what he posts every Friday, which is the Weekend Worldview Reader. He's a regular guest here on Mornings with Carmen. And, well, we just love him. So, Dan, thanks for sharing the bright light and the super scary darkness with us today. Thanks so much, Carmen. Take care. We appreciate it. You too. All right, friends, we've covered a lot of terrain today. Let me remind you to um, be people of prayer today, particularly for those um, thin places. We've got a lot of folks who are walking in fragility today, like in very, very fragile circumstances. And so let's be people of grace and graciousness, gentleness of spirit, mercy, um, forgiveness. Let's be people who are reaching out and lifting up and being, um, being certain that those who are within our reach are reached by Jesus today, um, by the very love of God he manifests through us, his people in the world. Have a great day and God bless. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.